Can we go again? One more time to the throne of grace. As those who need help. We, like we cannot receive the word without the help of the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that inspired the Scriptures, we need His illuminating help, His illumination. Let's, let's ask for His help. Our Father, we come and confess at this hour, no doubt on a bit of a gray day, and we're feeling like we have one less hour of sleep than was our right. And I know probably some of us are feeling that. We come to you, and we thank you for the word. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that you've not left us to ourselves, that you have revealed yourself as the God who may be known, and you've revealed yourself through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so as we open this passage, even you, the one who has told us not to boil a young goat, you told your children Israel this in its mother's milk, and immediately we have these question marks in our mind. We come to you and we pray at this hour for your help. We pray for your grace. And we pray more than anything that Christ might be exalted in this hour. That we might walk out of here saying to ourselves, what a great God we serve. What great grace is ours through the Son. This is our prayer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Closed on Sunday. Everybody knows those words on the Chick-fil-A marquee. On Sundays at Chick-fil-A, nobody works. Nobody. Everybody takes a break, if only for a day. Nothing goes into the corporate coffers on Sundays. Their entire business model is based on only six days of revenue each week, yet they thrive. They boat race the competition, and they've mastered the art of the drive through over the last three years. Let me ask you, are you ever closed? Do you ever take a break and rest? Can you sing with a full heart, my soul finds rest in God alone? For some of you who are very task-oriented, busyness is next to godliness. That's an axiom that you would adopt. You would never say it, but your life might reflect that thinking. And let me be transparent here, if I may. 
I am grieved when my default answer to the question of how my week is going is that dreaded word, busy. I then say to myself, how unoriginal. And I'm thinking maybe this is better. How about restful or resting in the midst of normal busyness? I mean, it's passe. It's just everywhere. Everyone says, how are you doing? Busy. No one really ever just says, ah, not busy at all. Absolutely doing nothing but taking in oxygen, you know, and exhaling. And don't misunderstand me here. The scriptures commend honest, hard, productive labor. It's the lamp of the woman in Proverbs 31 that did not go out at night. That's what King Lemuel says in describing her. He says, she puts her hands to the distaff, this rod-looking thing with the flax spun around it that's paired with the spindle. And look at the language in Proverbs 31 of this woman. She puts her hands to the distaff. She puts her hands to the spindle. Men, I give you permission at this moment to glance at your wife and say, that's you, honey. And Women, you can do that to your, and friends, you may do that to your friend and say, yeah, you work like that. Even Paul said this in his goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He said, you yourselves know that, here it is, these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me, or who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But integral to the covenant relationship that the Lord God had with Israel was his identity as the God who gives rest. But we find ourselves maniacally addicted to busyness and work. If I'm honest, most of the time, if you were to ask me, I feel like my work as a pastor is never done. There's always one more person to visit. There's one more text to send encouraging someone. There's one more hour of study If it's not in the original languages, it's in a commentary. It's listening to someone. It's exploring maybe the contours of how to preach a sermon on a particular text, the historical background, something. It never stops. And we're maniacally addicted to busyness and work. We're more ambitious sometimes, I think, than the providence of God would advise. We're too busy than spiritual wisdom would dictate And we're wiser than the God who both rested and longs to give his people rest. And so kids, here is your big idea. So moms and dads, you can ask your kids, what's the big idea of the message today? And it's this, God gives rest to his people. It's not complicated. God gives rest to his people. And so by virtue of that language, what we're saying is that rest is, is a gift. It's a gift from God. So in the middle of Israel's judicial laws here, we find a remarkable emphasis. It's 
rest in our text. And ironically, Pastor Jamie will finish up Hebrews 3 tonight in verses 12 through 19. We laugh at how often our sermons seem to be paired up. In verses 12 through 19 where he'll preach and there's this cautionary warning that we receive from the children of Israel and it was that they did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. How did it manifest itself? It manifested itself by rebellion and disobedience but he'll take that up tonight. And it's no exaggeration, no error when we pair God and rest. And that might be ironic because the very moment God is introduced to us in the pages of Scripture in Genesis 1-1, he's not sitting on his hands. He's like someone that's always on the move. It's there it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's as though God's hands come front and center, and he's shaping, he's speaking this world into existence, creating the spheres and filling them. But God, the God of the, the, of the Bible, he desires to give his people rest, and that's why the title, The God Who Gives Rest. Rest. So how do we see this in our text? Allow me to give you a very brief outline. Number one is this. I want us to see six plus one, how he gives rest in the course of years. Secondly is six plus one, rest in the cycle of a week. And then thirdly, and I'm going to use an old word, thrice, the idea of three times yearly. Thrice yearly or three times yearly, and that's his festivals or feasts. And the idea here is rest in the commemoration of the feasts. So it's very simple. Number one, six plus one, rest in the course of years. Number two, six plus one, rest in the cycle of a week. And then finally, thrice yearly, rest in the commemoration of the feasts. So look with me at six plus one rest in the course of years in verses 10 and 11. And I'd like you to put your eyes on the text. I want to encourage you to stay right here in these 10 verses over the next 30 minutes. Israel is prescribed here six years of agricultural production, all right? And then there's one year of rest. Imagine that right now. And they're not in Canaan. They're not in the promised land. And so prospectively, right, there's these 40 years of wandering. And so when you see seven years, you're thinking there's potentially about six cycles of this. And you'll notice that it says, you shall sow your land. And I want, as we look at verses 10 and 11, as we think of rest in the course of years, I want you to put your eyes on the words with me here and notice some of the basics. And that is this pattern that reflects the pattern of God working six days and resting on the seventh. And then as codified 
in the fourth commandment found there in Exodus 20 and verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy in a pattern of six and one. And you see this six years of production and then a year of rest. But that year of rest does not become then a year of reduction. It's a year of cessation. Production to cessation that doesn't become a year of reduction. It's not a year of lack. And what is the Lord God saying to Israel? And it's interesting. Look for the word your in these two verses. It's your land, right? So here's the command to work. Sow your land and gather in its yields. Your land. Remember that word. Now look at the end of verse 11. Your vineyard. Do the same thing with your vineyard. Do the same thing with your orchard. So there's a lot going on here. There's the affirmation, the rightness here of personal property. But then it's as though God says... I'm going to claim that seventh year for me. It's your land, it's your orchard, it's your vineyard, and here's these six years, and now in the seventh year, let the land rest. Literally, let it have a Sabbath. Let it remain fallow, okay? And what would be a normal means, knowing that God prescribes means where there's an end, if we'll eat, then we'll work. That's normal. It's the exception to that. Sometimes maybe you hit the, the lottery, okay? But normally we eat as a result of work. Work creates, work produces. But God says, for this year, pause. Hit the pause button. And I'm going to provide for you, all right? Even when a normal means of provision is set aside, I'm going to provide for you. Watch me provide. And he's the Lord of the harvest. I, I really saw this a number of years ago. We used to have, where we had our Hatfield Builders business, we had a garden on the south side of our office building, and it got full sun. And there was probably this time every year between the middle of June and the middle of July, and out of 200 square feet, we could harvest 30 or 40 pounds of vegetables a couple of days a week. It's that sweet spot where green beans and tomatoes and cucumbers and okra all, if you, you know how that is, they're all ripening and coming to maturity together. But one of the coolest things about this was that after a few years, the cherry tomato plants that we had planted, when they used to just drop all these tomatoes in the ground, we didn't have to go to Lowe's anymore and buy tomato plants. All those little cherry and grape tomatoes would just die, get tilled in the soil. And so every year about this time, what do you think we'd see? Little tomato seedlings. We didn't plant. In effect, the land was fallow, from about the November 1st. And there you have November, December, and around the middle of March, you'd see these little tomato seedlings. We never bought them. And yet, several months later, by the, by the, the 1st of June, the middle of June, these 
fallow pro ground produced tomato plants would be yielding in certain days three, four, five hundred little tomatoes just by the buckets. And God says to Israel, He says, Let the land rest. You shall let it rest. By the way, whose land? He says, your land. And so, in effect, God, he says, that's your land, but let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to let it rest. Not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, but for a year. Yahweh stakes his claim on it. And then there's this beautiful intersection and nuance to this, like we'll see in the next section, where if we think categorically, categorically of the first table of the law, the first four commandments, as our love for God, in the next six, our love for our neighbor, actually they come together. Look at the description here. It is, he says, that the poor, the very purpose of this six years plus one, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. Here is God's care in six years plus one for his creation, both people and beasts. And you'll notice it was your land, it was your vineyard, and it was your olive orchard. But notice how he describes the people. Not simply that the poor may eat, but the poor of your people. He connects them to this. And so in this first section, we see the love of God intersecting with love of neighbor. If we love him, we will love one another. We will love our neighbor, right? It is the Lord Jesus himself who says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Again, not simply the sentimentality of feeling, but a commitment to do one another good, to be for one another. For the Bible says that a friend loves at all times. Six years plus one, and then there's this rest where the poor of God's people may, this should not surprise us. We've seen this, we've seen this in the last couple of weeks and I want you to just turn back, if you will, for a moment. Turn with me and I want you to notice in chapter 22 the concern for those who are marginalized and on the fringe. Verse 21 of chapter 22 so chapter 22, verse 21, the concern that a sojourner or not be wronged or oppressed. God saying, guess what? You were a sojourner in the land of Egypt, and I heard your cry. And so I will surely hear their cry. He says, verse 22, don't mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Verse 25, if you lend money to any of my people, look, he claims them there. Any of them with you who is poor, don't be a money lender. Don't be like a title loan place. 
don't exact interest. If you take their cloak and pledge, return it before the sun, down, the sun goes down that they might be warm while they sleep. Why? Because if he cries to me, the end there of verse 27, I will hear for I am compassionate. Look there, chapter 23, speaking of justice, do not be partial, and there's balance to the law here, right? Do not be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. But then verse 6 of chapter 23, do not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Don't be partial to the poor, but do not pervert. And then now, amazingly, a whole year devoted where the poor either, either are able to grow their own crops or benefit from those things that would grow up naturally as a result of buried and fallen seed. Matthew Henry says this. He says, every seventh year the land was to rest. They may not plow or sow it. What the earth produced of itself should be eaten and not laid up. And this law seems to have been intended, Matthew Henry says, to teach dependence on providence and God's faithfulness in sending the larger increase while they kept his appointments. And it was also typical of the heavenly rest when all earthly labors, cares, and interest shall cease forever. Let's move now to our next section, six plus one, this rest in the cycle of a week. Here the fourth commandment is repeated, but it's nuanced. Its particular interest is not the man hearing this. And just interestingly, all these Old Testament commands are typically given in the singular, as though a person would hear this, as though it was directed just to him. Where in Paul's letters, as you read and through Romans and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, etc., all those commandments to the gathered church are always in the plural. But here in the Old Testament, they're typically in the singular. And so a man would be hearing this, six days you shall do your work. That's like singular. Again, this parallels with verse 10. This is the echo of the fourth commandment, all right? A restating of it. You shall do your work. There's that, your work. But on the seventh day, you shall rest. And now we're given the reason for the rest. We're seeing how there's a benefit for others. One man rests for the benefit even of the other, not just his own benefit. And we read it there. You shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. And so the new employee that's cooking those chicken sandwiches in a hot kitchen at Chick-fil-A on Saturday night and it's only an hour or two until closing. He's the lowest paid. 
He's just finished his orientation, and his main goal is not to suffer all the harms that befall people in kitchens of cuts, falls, and burns. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, whose whole thinking and his mind was shaped by a love for God and the love of Scripture, it would have been reflected here when you read, he says, that this six-day pattern in a day of rest, repeated 52 times in a year, was to actually give rest to an Israelite's ox and to his donkey. But listen to this. Not just the servant woman, but also her son, and moreover, even the alien, the first-time guest, the person that doesn't even have a legal, maybe doesn't have a driver's license, maybe doesn't even yet have a passport, is not here legally, the alien in your land, that they may be refreshed. That's what we read here. Six plus one, rest in the cycle of a week. But thirdly, I want us to see here is right between this section and the section on the festivals. Look at verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now you might say, what does he mean by that? Make no mention, let their name not be heard on your lips. What does God mean by this as the Israelites were hearing this? Is that literally no mention? The words don't even pass through the lips. Or does it mean something, is it representative and symbolic of something greater, the idea of praise and thanksgiving? But here's the point here that I want us to get out of this. What I think is intended is that to understand even here a reference to the first commandment, and that is that we should have no other gods before me, that we, here as the Israelites were hearing this, that we rest as the people of the only God. We hear this call of a year of rest after six years of labor, of a day of rest after six days of labor, that our rest is a holy rest. It's not simply inactivity, but it's a rest in God alone as all the source of all love and light and salvation. It's that. Now let's look at these festivals briefly. You'll notice it's a very short narrative, and there'll be opportunity in months to come where we'll look at each of these three feasts. But I want you to notice that he says, three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. He doesn't say, you shall feast for yourselves. The idea of keeping observing is for the benefit of God. It's God-centered. He says, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. And so just notice these three feasts. Moms and dads, it's helpful if you point this out 
to your children and help them with this. First, the feast of unleavened bread. Secondly, the feast of the harvest or of first fruits. And then thirdly, the feast of ingathering there at the end of the year, at the point when the harvest is finished. You'll notice that. And we're already quite familiar with this feast of the unleavened bread, which we're told about and we're given in Exodus chapter 12. You might turn there just for a moment, right? And you know this is summarized in Exodus 23. This is like the little notes, the executive summary. They understood that this feast was by way of command. And they were to eat a diet of unleavened bread for seven days in this month of Abib. And here's the reason. It's very simple there. It's at the end of that sentence. For in it, you came out of Egypt. And so as we look at chapter 12 and we read of the Passover, right? You see a lamb you see a period of time, you see a time frame of killing this goat, right? The same day, the 14th of the month, verse six, everyone will kill their lambs at twilight. They take some of that blood, they put it on the doorpost, on the lentil, the post, the lentil, which is just above the top of the door. And that night they were to eat the flesh of that goat, that lamb, that lamb, they were to eat it, roast it on the fire, and they were to eat it with this unleavened bread, that is bread made without yeast. And kids, you might have seen mom or dad bake, and they may buy yeast in little packets. I don't think that's what the children of Israel had. But the point, it was bread that would not rise like you and I are familiar and they would take the roasted lamb, the unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they'd eat of it. And they weren't to let any of it remain until the morning. They were to eat all of it, all right? But anything that would remain, we read in verse 10, they were to have burned it, all right? They were to have eaten all they could, but whatever they couldn't, they burned it. And they were to do this in this sense of readiness. Maybe some of you have eaten a meal. We had no time to sit down. You're sitting there eating like this, standing up. That's kind of how it's the sense of it. They were belt was fastened. They were ready to go. Their sandals were on their feet. The staff was in their hand. They were to eat it in haste. And we read in Exodus 23. Here it is, verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. And why? Here's the significance of it. This was the final plague that God, in executing judgment on Egypt and on Pharaoh, denouncing the gods of Egypt, God's demonstration that he was for his people, and that he was the God who's greater than all gods. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And children, you know who is our Passover lamb. Who is our Passover lamb? Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so this feast was to continue. So every year they were to do that. And he says, when you do this, for in it you came out of Egypt, none of you shall appear before me empty-handed. And I want to read here from Matthew Henry, who speaks of this idea of us not coming empty-handed before the Lord. He says, they must come together of the Israelites. They must come together before the Lord. And he says, what a good, what a good master do we serve, who has made it our duty to rejoice before him. Let us devote with pleasure to the service of God that portion of our time which he requires and count his Sabbaths in ordinances to be a feast unto our souls. And hear this. He says, they were not to come empty-handed. So now we must not come to worship God empty-hearted. Not empty-handed, but neither what? empty-hearted. Our souls must be filled with holy desires toward him and dedications of ourselves to him for with such sacrifices, he says, God is well pleased. Now there's a second festival, a second feast. I want you to see this briefly and that is the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what he says you sow in the field there, the first half of verse 16. Who is it that Paul says is the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? It is Christ. You might turn for a moment. You might just note this verse, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so when you think of this feast of the first fruits of the Israelites' labor, and you read it there in Exodus twenty-three sixteen. You may index that to First Corinthians fifteen. That in fact, of God's work of redemption, His Son is the first fruit of those who've fallen asleep. And he, Paul goes on to say, "For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die." so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then then finally, there is this feast of ingathering here. He says, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. The people of God are to be marked with this holy thankfulness. Let me ask you this is an application question. Can you sing a song genuinely and sing, My heart 
is filled with thankfulness? Is your heart disposed to be grateful or grumbly? Like, be honest. Be honest. What's your orientation? Do you understand that where Paul says in 1 Corinthians that why should we boast as though we've created what we have? Everything we have is from his hand. And so when you've done all that you've done, when you've planted, when you've watered, watered, when you've fertilized, when you've labored, do you receive, even as the Israelites there, the end, the feast of the end gathering, do you receive it with a sense of gratitude, a gracious response to God, a, a lifting up of your hands that there's nothing that you have that you have not received from him? I want us to see briefly in the remaining verses three principles, some principles that will shape our worth, our, that will shape our worship. First, dads, men, husbands, I want to note there in verse 17 it says, Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. Men, I want to ask you a question. Are you leading? Are you leading? Your family, are you leading your wives and your children to be a worshiping family? Are you taking time to open the word, to pray with your wife, with your children, to exercise foresight and think about Sunday's coming, it's Saturday. What can we do as a family to be ready for the Lord's Day tomorrow? What passage can we read? What what do we need to do in terms of being ready with the children? Clothes and laundry and ironing, meals, getting to bed. Yeah, the, the, the Lord's Day really begins Saturday night. Are you staying up till one or two in the morning binge watching or just playing around? Is there a way to really make the Lord's Day to, to, to set it apart by beginning on Saturday and setting your mind on, so for example, today thinking, hey, I can read in Exodus 23, or this afternoon we can begin to think about Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, and to, to meditate so that we come prepared as Pastor Jamie will open Hebrews 3 tonight at 5 o'clock. Men, you see this leadership here in verse 17, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. That doesn't mean that the women were not involved in keeping or commemorating the feast. I think it points to leadership. Not as superiors in men, but as their function in providing leadership. Now I want you to see these three principles to shape our worship from verses 18 through 19. Number one, the principle of purity. In verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. You see that paid forward in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, hey, if you're there ready to present your offering and you realize there's someone you're at war with that you have unresolved conflict that you go and you attempt to deal with that. Then he says, then present 
your offering. Kids, you know, leaven, what is leaven? Leavened bread is symbolic of something that's unclean, that's sinful, that we find that in the New Testament. And he says, don't let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. In other words, similar to Exodus 12, don't leave it uneaten. There we saw that in the verse there, verse 10 of chapter 12. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Let your worship be full. Let it be pure. But secondly, let your worship be marked by generosity. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And so I'd ask this. When you come on the Lord's day, here's our opportunity. It's as we walk into this place, we've prayed for this time. We've thought about the word that we're going to hear. We've thought about brothers and sisters with whom we'll walk towards and we're going to live out the one another. We're going to express care. We're going to ask questions to inquire how they're really doing. We're going to say, this, I've been praying for you about this. Can you update me? We're going to rejoice with those who've experienced good. We're going to grieve with those who are anxious and worried, who life has, has had, who's had trials thrown at them who have things they're anxious about. And we're going to come and we're going to give the best. That's not simply speaking to giving here in terms of the application, us giving our tithes. I mean, that's, I think, an implication of this. But it's giving of our attention, being prepared as we come together as the people of God, the best of the first fruits, not delaying to give what is God's. And then finally, in the strangest of all verses, you might wonder, what is meant by you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? The foreign nations, this was common. This, this was something that other nations did. But it's a travesty, right? The very thing that would give a goat a kid life that nourishes it so that a goat becomes a full, you know, a kid becomes a full-grown goat. You would use that milk as the medium of cooking it? That's unnatural. That lacks faithfulness. That's not a strangeness. And I'm not saying that we, you can't cook meat in milk now. But we're saying the principle, the enduring principle here was that our wor- there should be a faithfulness to our worship. And it ought, our worship ought to look, the way we worship God should be shaped and transformed by this word and not by the culture around us. Well, let me close. Remember the sign on the Chick-fil-A marquee closed on Sundays. Here, is a, here, though, is God's sign for you and me. God says, always open for your rest, right? Chick-fil-A closed on Sundays. 
God's sign always open for your rest. He rested on that seventh day at the completion of his work at creation. It was a holy rest of satisfaction and an enduring pattern for us. He longed to bring his people Israel into the rest of the promised land. And as we'll see tonight, only their unbelief prevented it. It's his son's invitation in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is like. You might, you might remember from Revelation 14 that those outside of Christ who worship the mark of the beast, we're told this in Revelation 14 and verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name, Yet now read of Christ's lambs, his sheep in verses 13 and 14 of that same chapter. John hears these words, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Of Matthew 11, I ask, who is the Son He's the son of the father, the father who is sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. Why, why will you not come to him? Who is the son who invites you to himself, who says, come to me? He is the one to whom the father has literally handed over all things to his governance, to his authority. Why will you not come to him who is king of kings and lord of lords? Who is this son whose invitation is particularly for those who are weary and heavy laden? And that's not just a weariness and heavy ladenness of body, but one of soul. He is the one who you, who's known uniquely in a way only by the Father, the one who uniquely, uniquely really knows the Father, and he speaks gently. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be my disciple. Who is the son who promises rest, who promises you rest? The one who promises graciously with these words, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My friends, this rest is never found apart from Christ. It's never separated from the experience of the yoke of his learning on us. But there's a promise. He promises that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But what is most precious in him is that in him, under his yoke, there's something that cannot be calculated. It's just got too many zeros behind it. 
It's true rest. What's promised is true rest. Why? He is the God who gives rest. Why will you stand far off? Make a beeline today to him, the God who gives rest.